Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 43. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 43. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm John Polstro. And I'm Greg Monteith. Today we have no agenda. In the past weeks, we've (laughs) either had a book or some listener feedback or something burning or has what did you just call it something burning on the grill yeah something hot on the grill we've <laughs> got to get off <laughs> so we're we we got a well greg has some interesting upcoming news that i think he'd like to share and talk about a little bit i thought maybe we could explore that and and see where that's going and then whatever else uh happens to come about so Tell us about your upcoming news. Well, I am pretty excited about it. You know, it's been back and forth and back and forth. But uh, and maybe this is a it's a broader discussion too. But the upcoming news is that uh, um, my spouse Susan and my uh, daughters Lauren and Kieran and I will be going to Switzerland for the summer for June, July, and it looks like about half of August. So we are um doesn't sound exactly like you'll be suffering for God. <laughs> well, you know, I, I and I guess this is where I was thinking when I said just a moment ago broader discussion. Susan and I are still officially separated. We have been separated. In other words, by officially I mean we live in different places. I sleep and live and have all my stuff in a an apartment that's about uh about a mile as the crow flies from where our house is, we have been reconciled for over a year now, and we have been sort of delaying the process of reintegration as we sort of have identified issues that were more circumstantial and more to do with the house and, uh, you know, certain situations about our living conditions that had been really contributing to the fact that we, you know, nearly got divorced. So, um, as part of this reintegration, you know, there, there are other factors that are involved as well. There's the timing in terms of some air miles we've collected and they expire. We're going to stay at uh, Swiss Labrie. So, uh, the branch of the original branch of Labrie fellowship, which is in Switzerland, which is where you and I met, obviously John. And, uh, I'm working for a job that's portable right now. I can go anywhere in the world. So there are a number of factors combined to make this into uh, not the best time overall. It's still going to cost something to do it, but it's going to be a whole lot easier to do it now. And I, I'm really hoping that this is going to be a, uh, you know, the main purpose really is for us to reintegrate as a family and uh, to rebuild some trust with the girls. I think they've suffered through this uh, separation and, and they up until now, they just haven't believed, even though we've been talking about it and planning it. And, you know, the relationship has really changed in the past year. And we've been talking about this and planning it for the past year. They just haven't really believed that I'm actually going to move back in and we're actually going to be a family again. So 
one of the things Susan wanted was to 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 make this reintegration and uh, you know work as best as possible. And her th- one of her thoughts was, if we did this someplace else than here, it might go better. And uh, you know, there's lots of reasons. Uh, the other reasons I mentioned before are good reasons to go. And we'd been planning on taking the girls and you know hope to do this sometime in their teenage years. And and it looks like now is the the best time. So. So when you're there, will you be a student? So in the in the Libri terminology, there's there's like three different levels. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, and it it's kind of funny. Once you've been there for a while, you just kind of take the terms for granted. But from yeah. the outside, it sounds like some type of uh, I don't know commune or some, <laughs> some kind of strange <laughs> setup. So there are quote students, there are helpers, and there are workers. And a student is is your I, I, it sounds kind of like a caste system, kind of like your lowest <laughs> level. <laughs> just kind of true. It's but there are pros and cons to each of the levels. So as a student, you have really no major responsibilities except to study half the day and uh, help out around the facilities half the day. As a worker, you no, I'm sorry. As a helper, what you work you work more than you study, but you don't have to pay. Is that right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And then as a worker, you are on staff and you, quote, work there. So, yeah. So you, what will what will your role be? Like, what will your participation in the community be? What, what, do, what are you guys thinking there? Um, I think we'll be attending a few meals, that's for sure. And uh, like a few meal discussions. So, you know, some of the meals, as, as you know, are formal meals and there's a discussion that takes place. There's one conversation around the table for the duration of the meal time. And then others are just, you're there to eat and everybody has their own conversations at their own tables. We'll be there for, um, I think, the Thursday night uh, general, you know, um, day off meal uh, is one that we'll be welcome to but we have also talked about attending some uh, formal meals so I think there'll be one or maybe two of those a week and then um, we will probably attend we'll attend the chapel service on Sunday we'll attend any lectures uh, possibly Uh, maybe Susan more and the girls more than I will and then we may have some time. I'm hoping we'll have some time with, with Greg Lowry. That hasn't all been hammered out yet. Might have a couple of uh, sessions with him and just, uh, you know, get to a chance to connect and chat about some, you know, intellectual issues, theological questions, et cetera. So, and then I'll be working. Uh, you know, I'll be doing my 40 hours a week uh, with my job and uh, my paid job and, uh yeah, we'll be traveling as much as we can. Um, I think we're going to get the uh, the Swiss demi tarif card, which means that you know you, you pay us, you pay for the card, and then all your rail tickets and all your public transit is half price. And then there's a card you get for the kids, and as long as they're traveling with a parent, their travel's free. So really? that helps. How old? Yeah. How, what age does that go up to? Oh, 16, 17, 17. Even if you don't live there? And no, you don't have to live there. So we did this last time. We were there, which was seven years ago, and it was 30 francs for each kid, right? So it's 20, whatever that is, 25 bucks. For I have your no kids. idea. I have no idea what the conversion rates are. It's, I haven't looked at them in years. It's, for the kids, it's really good. Like it would be unaffordable if you had to pay a, a lot for the kids. But so our kids are essentially free. And then for Susan and I, we buy this half, 
half tariff card, demi tarif. That way, you know, you shell out about, I don't know, 160 bucks US per person. And it works out to, oh, maybe it's actually, maybe it's a little bit more than that. Maybe it's about 180 bucks US a person. But then all, you know, you're only paying half price for all your tickets. So that's, that helps. So we're going to, you know, we're going to travel around. I thought of going to the, the east side of the country to uh, Davos and St. Moritz, but oh my gosh, it's so far. It's six and a half hours by rail. That doesn't sound that far to me. Well, the problem is I, we really don't want to pay for a hotel or anything. Oh, <laughs> right. So yeah, it's these that, are day trips. There's that problem. Yes. Yeah. No, and no. that's the funny part about Switzerland is yeah the train isn't the train isn't that expensive. No. Well, the bus ride down the hill I always thought was expensive, but yeah, and general transportation is not that expensive. But yeah, if you want to stay anywhere, whoa, watch out. Yeah. So. Which is why. Swiss Libri, like being able to stay and study and be in Waymo, which is the little village that Libri is in, is so amazing. Mm-hmm. Has that, how has that village changed? Is it still fairly rural? I think so. I mean, we were that last there in 2007, and it seemed very, very similar. I think, I think the big changes, there have been some changes at Libri where I think that um, Libri has been forced to uh, categorize its students as 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 tourists more than students and so they're this the Libri is subject to a certain tax by the commune which by the canton which is uh <laughs> not not which is a little painful for them it's really hurting them financially so but yeah i think that the village is, is still appears the same you know there's one little one little shop there was a pub Sometimes the, the the pub is open, and sometimes for years it's it's unowned and it's not making money. Sometimes the shop is a. I think last time we were there, it was an antique shop. I'm not sure if it's still running or not running, or if it's been turned back into a little grocery store again, or what it is. But I think it's much the same. So I think for us, the big the big activity is going to be. Uh, you know, we don't really have the money to be doing a lot of hardcore sightseeing. Uh, we're certainly going to towns and you know and go to a, a few museums, but a lot of it's going to be hiking and just being in the uh, you know on the on, on on the trails on the in the mountains and and just trying to you know enjoy that and and doing almost a little bit of homesteading with with you know Susan's uh she has her 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 cooking degree her chef's papers if you like she's not not not, not I think they call it the chef's papers but it's not really being a chef that's that's not the that's quite a quite a a step up, up, up above. Um, but she's you know done cooking school for a year and she's fully trained. And so we'll be doing a lot of you know food preparation and and just meal kind of focus and getting back to eating as a family, getting back to spending time together in the evenings, getting back to less technology coming in the way between us, and just having more of a schedule with the girls so that we can reconnect and uh just just reconnect overall is really the big the big focus nice and what are are you thinking will you have time to study like are you thinking of exploring any topics that we've been discussing or what, yeah anything rattling around in your head there yeah well i mean you as you may know uh you know greg greg lowry has been i think he's been mostly in charge of the 
the the library there at at Libri, and it has it has grown and spread. It is huge now. So um, I think it's quite a quite a an adequate little library. I I mean the two subjects that we've discussed in the last uh, you know twenty thirty podcasts that that are really kind of pressing for me would the one is the whole slave versus servant question and i i picked up a couple of books that i think i'm going to take with me and then see what i can add to that uh from the libri library so you know that's the whole piece about for me it's it's um the, the real focus of christianity and the focus of human existence is love and truth these are the two kind of co-central notions or orientations and within this idea of truth in terms of christianity there i would frame that as being christians are servants but there's also this, you know, the fact that the word uh, that's the, uh, very that's typically translated as uh, servant, the doulos, uh, can also mean slave. Now, just getting into that and digging into that, um, you know, understanding that a bit better um, is is pretty important for me. And so I'll be. That's one topic, and the other is um, in the Hebrew Bible. It's the uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, if it's Akeda or Akeda. It's the Genesis 22, the account of Abraham and Isaac and the what's typically called the sacrifice of Isaac. And, you know, we had a discussion on that, I think, just a couple podcasts ago um, where I was really putting forward the idea that I think that particular situation is not should not be seen as, as some sort of typical way of identifying uh, obedience, but is rather very likely something to do with an ancient Near Eastern uh, formulation of of the initial interaction between the founder of a faith and the divinity. And of course, you know, obviously there's a very particular twist to this story in the Hebrew Bible in that, of course, Isaac is not, is not sacrificed, but, but yeah, that one's a, that one's a big, um, I I really think that one should be a big head shaker to a lot of people. You know, the the uh, emphasis that made in the Hebrew scriptures uh, attributed to Yahweh, that, that Yahweh is completely abhorred by this idea of child sacrifice, and then, then you know, goes off, is seen to um, command Abraham to go off and sacrifice Isaac, and, and seen to in a way that's legitimate. And, and I think that that's very unfounded. I think that's really illegitimate. I think well, you can't have those two notions together. So I'm really interested in digging into that a little further. Well, and I think that one is that one's intriguing to me because so I don't even know what I don't even know how old I was when I first heard that story. I'm guessing I was like 2 or 3. Like mm-hmm. I've heard Bible stories and gone to Sunday school from as early as I can remember. And so that story it's just part of my consciousness of, in terms of the story, what the story means, and what the outcome was. Hmm. So the story is, I don't remember the, the, the backdrop or the introduction, to, but it's just this, you know, Abraham is, is told to sacrifice his son Isaac, so he, they go on a little trip somewhere, and he's about to, he builds the fire, whatever, the he sets a fire, he's got Isaac all ready to like put on that fire and light on fire, I guess, and sacrifice. Mm. And then God says, oh, no, don't do that. You know, I can see that you 
trust me or something like that. And so it doesn't happen. And and mm-hmm. the example given is that because it's an example of trusting God. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of held out as as the gold standard example of what it means to trust God and that God will provide. And yeah, that's kind of how I think of and remember the story. So it's interesting for you to kind of come along and say, wait a minute. No, I don't, I don't think that's what was going on at all. Which I think to some people would be a little disturbing, like, wait a minute, that's what I've been thought and believed and have never looked at it a different way my entire life. How can you be showing up with a different view on this? What is that possible? So, so yeah. I'm, and I'm still, the jury's still out for me. I, if anyone heard us discussing that, I, I <laughs> <laughs> my inclination is usually to go along with you, but then I'll uh, <laughs> trust but verify. Um, so, yeah, as I was reading along, I was like, I don't know. I still, I'm not, I'm not so sure. So I'll be curious to hear what you find as you dig into that and, and yeah, to get a deeper, hopefully more accurate understanding of what, what's really going on there and what it means. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad the jury's still out. Like I, I, I'm glad that, that you kind of, uh, are holding your position because it, it, it helps me sometimes to, to have that and uh, that sort of, you know, that resistance, that other perspective being kind of really fleshed out in front of me or if not fleshed out, then just, just sort of, hey, you know, I'm not, you're not, you're not convincing me, Greg. So, well, your track record's pretty good with me so far. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so far your new ideas, they've, they've held water. So I'm not <laughs> I guess this for me is where, this is where this this tension between love and truth is so important because you know even as we were talking there i mean i didn't have this normally with a lot of these things when i'm suggesting a different perspective on it it's because i've i've read something i've done some research on it i hadn't really done much research on this um but the big thing that was coming to me was that from a perspective of a loving parent and father this is this is a this is a ridiculous thing. This is a it's an abhorrent thing. And then of course as I was as we were talking my mind is going to these verses and these sections of the Hebrew Bible where God is duly abhorred with this idea of child sacrifice where this is this is a, an absolutely hideous thing. Which is funny because where my mind goes to is so you're, it's interesting because your mind is going to God as parent, the idea of love. My mind is going immediately to God as sovereign. He can do whatever ah. the heck he wants. If, ah. I mean, if he's going to kill something or assist to kill a child, well, you know, he's, I'm being sarcastic now. Well, he's God. I mean, he, his, his ways are mysterious and beyond anything we can understand. So, you know, if that's what he was going to do, that's what he was going to do. I mean, who are we to question it? Yeah, yeah. And you know, actually, this is a good point. If I, I can make a, raise a point and then jump off of it. Do it. The point I want to raise is that in that discussion, I commented on one of John Piper's essays, uh, one of his publications, and I, I misattributed it. He wrote something called, I believe the title was, How Can a Sovereign God Love? And in it, the discussion was about hell not about sacrifice. Now, I think they're very closely linked, so I see where I made the mistake, but I just want to clarify that I did attribute Piper's comments about his son's 
to being about you know them being sacrificed by God. His comments, as I understand them, were about his if God chooses to to not you know it's God's God's sovereign, and if God chooses not to accept uh, Piper's sons uh, into heaven, if 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 uh, they're not uh, the the elect, so this is. Uh, John Piper speaking from a Reformed theological perspective where certain people are chosen and certain people are not chosen. And if his sons don't happen to be chosen, that, that, that this would have no bearing on Piper's response to God. And, and I'm not suggesting that, I, I think the idea was not Piper saying, if my sons aren't Christians. I think his, his suggestion was, and, and this is part of the trickiness of this doctrine you know, in in Reformed and I believe Presbyterian circles, uh, there are probably some some levels of nuance here. But broadly speaking, within these perspectives, people could be quote unquote Christians and not be elect. You know, and and maybe this is the phenomena of being, um, y- you know, the, the 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 situations in the New Testament where Jesus said, you know. Uh, I asked you for a cup of water, or I did this, or I did that, and you said, you know, you refused me, and, he, you know, this whole goats and the sheep sort of thing, and people are saying, well, you know, when did you do this? And uh, we don't recall you doing this, and these, these people are, you know, ostensibly followers. So I think what Piper's writing about is, my sons could be ostensibly followers of Christian, of, 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 of Christ, ostensibly be Christians, and yet not be accepted, and I would not hold that in any way against God. And, and I suppose um, <clears throat> a number of people have, found that view to be fairly um, deeply problematic. And, but I just want to clarify that I, I, uh, I, I misrepresented that and I don't like that. That's, that's not something I uh, would want to do. And, and if any time I, I see I've done it, I want to correct it. So I'm just doing that now. But the, the, the point that I will raise and I will kind of move back in the direction, if, if this whole idea that uh, for example, if, if God were to call me to sacrifice my children, I would say, no, because you're not God. You would never do such a thing. And, and then, you know, the, what I tried to raise in that podcast when we discussed this last was that we never see this recurring. This is not a motif. It should not be taken as a motif. That Abraham's faithfulness to God was not his faithfulness with Isaac. It was his faithfulness in answering God in the first place. It was his faithfulness in coming. It was his faithfulness in entering uh, into a covenant, and before that, in accepting a promise. So here's what it, I'm, I looked it up again because I wanted to go back there. Genesis 22. Yeah. I'm reading from the NASB. Verse, so 20, Genesis 22:10. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Mm-hmm. Which that last part would be a very classic sermon illustration as well that God always provides, even when it looks really scary. 
Me and being too sarcastic there, but d- yes, that that's very familiar. Yeah. So I I don't know. I keep coming back to this. I I, I want to understand your position, but it's it seems pretty cut and dry here. To yeah. Me. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, God said, "Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now, I know that you fear mm-hmm. God, since you have not withheld mm-hmm. your son, your only son from me." So the key takeaway to me, knowing nothing about ancient, the, the, the time that this was written or refers to, I would just say, well, yeah, it's all about fearing God. So Abraham is rewarded for fearing God. He's rewarded in the sense that he doesn't have to kill his son. And so, and then the natural jumping off point today would be, you know, are, are the life application in some Sunday sermon this morning would be, you know, we need to fear God because when we fear God, then he rewards us and gives us good stuff. I'm not suggesting that these words are, aren't written. I'm not suggesting that's, you know, there's another translation out there of Genesis 22. What we, what we would, you know, of the section of, of the old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that is Genesis 22. I'm not suggesting that. I guess what I'm suggesting is that that my hunch, my strong hunch, is that this is a formula. That there's something formulaic in this, and and the one thing that's really interesting to me is it begins Genesis 22 begins, you know, um, and I'm reading from the NRSV. Uh, this is verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I shall show you. Now, the interesting part I want to draw to your, want to sort of focus on is, is love. And, and apparently this is the first use of the word love in this sense in Genesis. And I'm looking at a, uh, I'm looking at a text by John Lawlor, L-A-W-L-O-R. I haven't read it all the way through, but some of the pieces I've touched on focus on on that piece about love. Now, when you say, real quick though, when you say this is formulaic, are you taking a position, like some people will say, well, you know, did Adam and Eve really exist? Nah, that was just a story, but it's, you know, it was written down by... It was inspired in the sense that it was written down by some writer that was inspired by God. But did Adam and Eve really exist? No. Did Abraham exist? Eh, maybe not. You know. But this this story is really in the Bible just to make a point. Like when you say formulation, like where? Okay. What what I mean is, so um, the way, for example, the covenant is structured. The covenant is a, it's it's a Hittite structure. It's a Hittite formula. The covenant that the Jews created with God is not some sort of an original formula or document type. It's, it's based on Hittite covenant. And so what I'm saying is that there were certain ways of doing things prevalent in the ancient Near East in the time that all this was happening. And it's, you know, a lot of people want to think that Everything sort of began with Israel, 
You know, the way Israel did things was the way that they were first done. And then other cultures, if we see this happening elsewhere, they copied Israel. And I think that that's evidence stands to the complete contrary. No, Israel copied other cultures. You've got this tiny little culture nestled in amongst other very large, prominent, powerful, long-standing cultures. And Israel took different things from them. And one way of asserting your validity is to say things in a way that the people around you understand. And I think what Israel is doing here is saying uh, the origins of our beginning are valid because they begin in ways similar to the ways they show traits of authenticity that you other people recognize. Now, on the one hand, people would say, well, this is completely unimportant. You know, God is God and God doesn't care what other gods think because other gods are not, not God at all. They're false. Well, um, yes and no. Yes, ob- objectively, that's true. I believe, you know, I would agree with that. Other gods are not gods. They're false. They don't exist. But no, it's not true that, that Israel does not need to be legitimated in the eyes of its neighbors. They certainly do. That was something that was important, not only for their survival, but it's also for the, the reality that God is trying to promote God's self. And God's not trying to do it by going over and dominating everyone. God's not saying, I'm God and showing up in a way and, you know, obliterating the, the pyramids in Egypt and obliterating the, um, the, the temples and worship places in Assyria and Babylonia. That's not how God works. And I think to think that way is, is to think like you're living in some sort of a Hollywood action film. And pardon me, that's not reality. You know, get your head out of your own culture and get it back into where it is. Like read the Bible for what it is. See it from where it stands. Because if you don't, you're going to apply um, strictures and you're going to apply terms that are 20th century terms. And that's just, that's unfair, right? We can't hold them to, to our standards uh, as though our standards are the only standards that, are, that a rational being would use. That's not the way we look at things. We even know that people in different cultures now, right now, at the time that you and I are talking, see things differently. And we can't necessarily impose our views on them. I may still believe mine are better in certain ways. I may believe theirs are better in certain ways. But I can't just by fiat say, this is the way it is, and you're going to, you know, you're an idiot if you don't see things my way. That doesn't happen. That doesn't work. So what I'm saying about the Abraham and Isaac story is that my sense is, this is a formula. There's something in this that's, a, that's formulaic, that represents a formula that legitimates the, or, the, the Abraham as the founder of a faith in a certain way to other nations because of this formula. That's my hunch. I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but I'm saying that its purpose was other than what we think it is. I think its purpose was not to show that Abraham was willing to do anything, and so we should be willing to do anything. You know, it's, that's tantamount to saying that, you know, God does whatever God wants to do. Well, no, I don't think God does whatever God wants to do. I think God is bound. God is bound by, by a number of things. God is bound by the fact that God is tr- truth. God won't suffer uh, situations as lies and call them true. God is also bound by God's love. You know, it's not just, it's not arbitrary that God seeks relationship with us. And that's not something that's going to change, right? We talk about God's love being unconditional. Is God bound by that? Absolutely. Right? It's not as though, we sometimes make this idea that freedom is the highest 
value and the fact that 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 God is so powerful that God could be free of everything means that God is truly worthy. And I think that's bunk. That's some 20th century North American uh, way of prioritizing uh, different values that uh, we've imposed on a biblical model. And uh, it should be the reverse. We need to take the biblical model and impose it on us. So for me, that comes back to my stance on truth and love. That's what I see as being the highest values here in the biblical setting with God as an entity and I think also with human beings. So I guess my point is if we look at this Sure, we see Abraham acting in a way that's strange. We see Abraham acting in a way that's probably very contradictory to the God that Abraham has, uh, through these years of acquaintance, has come to understand God to be. And that what we should be seeing this as is not a sense of, you know, doesn't matter what God asks of you, just do it. Because God certainly has never asked you to turn your brain off. And when you turn your brain off... You're going to do exactly that. You're going to take whatever you, whatever you think God, and, and I'm putting quotation marks around the word God, is asking you to do, and you're going to do it. And you know what? That could be your imagination. That could be who knows what type of things. I mean, Israel is constantly dealing with this problem of false gods. And we can say, oh, those false gods, they're not real, so they don't count. Well, real or not, they're having a pretty big impact, don't you think? And I think they still have that impact today. So, no, we can't just take everything that we think is God as being God, because then we're going to start making a whole bunch of mistakes. And if this situation with Isaac, as I mentioned before, if this was supposed to be a template for obedience, why don't we see Moses doing it with Moses' son? Why don't we see David doing it? Why don't we see Hezekiah doing it? Why don't we see the other prophets doing it? Why, in fact, don't we see Jesus doing it? Well, in some ironic way, I mean, God, in a sense, sacrificed his own son. He did. He did. But that's in a very uh, – but that's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. It's in a remarkably specific context, remarkably specific. It's unique. These situations are unique. And I would say that on the one hand then you've got Jesus fulfilling the covenant. So acting as Israel, he fulfills the covenant. Acting as Israel, he takes on the punishments of that covenant, being God. He is able to overcome both and to ultimately fulfill the covenant and thereby fulfill the promise to open up the possibility of right relationship, opening up, if you might want to call it this, salvation history to all of humanity. But this act of obedience was also an act of love, right? It's not just that Jesus was obedient. That was the how. How did Jesus do this? By being obedient. Why was Jesus obedient? Why did he do this? He didn't do it because he was obedient. Not in terms of why. Why did he do it? Because he loves us. For God so loved the world. You know, John 3.16. And here we come back to this kind of, this piece about talking to, you know, this, this introduction that you love Isaac. You love your son. And you're going to go off and do this. And, and, and the, the kind of the, the piece that you read at the end there, um, and what, what was it? You know, now that I see that you have feared, you fear the Lord. And, you know, you and I had this, this talk about um, a couple of podcasts ago in Deuteronomy. 
you know, Deuteronomy uh, 6, where we've got this, this combined emphasis on fearing the Lord and loving God, you know? Um, uh, Deuteronomy 6, and uh, it begins, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinance that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to occupy and cross over into, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep the decrees, his decrees and his commandments that I'm commanding you so that your days may be long. We skip down one verse to verse four. That was verses one and two. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. And there's, you know, there's this joint emphasis on fearing God and loving God. And again, I think that fearing God is part of what it is. You know what? We got to... Oh, did it? Your audio just got really horrible. Yeah, so let's go back. Okay. I'm going to hang up and call you back. So go back to reread okay. the first scripture that you read, and then hopefully you can... I guess what I'm what I'm looking at here with with Abraham and Isaac, it begins with this piece where God describes God takes a time as the author writes to describe Isaac as you know being the son that you love being the, take take Isaac um, take your son your only son Isaac whom you love and when Abraham sort of successfully undergoes this, this, this test, if you like. Um, the response in verse 12 is, um, he said, being God, I guess, do not lay your hand on the boy or do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And I guess the, these two pieces, love and fearing God, this is really typical of the Old Testament. And, and a little while ago, you and I had a discussion a few podcasts back about Deuteronomy 6, which is where, you know, Moses is laying out, it's, it's really this uh, kind of synopsis of what's going on, what's the point of this, uh, this covenant. And it begins in verse, you know, Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, and I'm reading from the NRSV again. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to occupy and cross over into. So that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I'm commanding you so that your days may be long. Those are verses one and two. I'll just skip to verse four now and you can hear. So the first one, obviously you've got this sense of the, in verse two there, fear the Lord. In verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. And you've got this, 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 these two notions that come together, right? You've got fearing God and loving God. Um, my sense is, with again, and this is another piece that I think I'd like to, to dive into a little bit, that in the ancient Near East, the typical response to the divinity is fear, this idea of awe and reverence. And, and maybe in certain cases, it really is fear, Right. Uh, some of these divinities sounded pretty terrible or terrifying. Um, 
but in other words, there's something, there's, there's fear of the Lord. There's this sort of typical way of seeing the divinity that says to other people at that time, this is a God. It legitimate, legitimates Yahweh. And yet there's something different. I've never heard in any other culture in the ancient Near East of the idea of loving God and God loving you. I've never heard of love being part of a human divine relationship. And I think what we're seeing, my hunch is that what we're seeing in, in Genesis 22 is this kind of, you know, we've got this, this really interesting interplay here with love being really focused on and fearing God. And I, my, my hunch is that we are, what we're going to see is that this is something, um, it's a formula in the sense that it is a soundbite that other people in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, that neighboring, whether they be Assyrians or Babylonians or whomever they would be, would have the sense from hearing the story, on the one hand, that this is a legitimate sort of action or process for the founder of a faith. On the other hand, there's something different going on. You know, this emphasis on love, I think, is... Well, you know, one of the things that, that I've read time and again about Hebrew narrative is, is, is that it is extremely terse. There are no points put in. You don't have to mention the love relationship. When it is mentioned, that's saying something particular, right? It's not a throwaway comment. For us, it's a throwaway comment that the father loves his son. In this context, this is not a throwaway comment. We're, we are meant to be... Uh, you know, highlighting this because they've, they've put it in there. And so um, my hunch is we're going to see that this is not a notion of what it is to be obedient. This is not a standard for obedience. This is a standard for the inauguration of a faith in the ancient Near East, Eastern times. And are there things that demonstrate obedience? Yes. Is there an emphasis on love here? Yes. There's also an emphasis on fearing God. And I think these two things, again, go together. They kind of mirror what's in uh, the beginning of Deuteronomy. Again, my hunch is they're both signs and markers of the authenticity of a divine interaction while also being signs and markers of something very different. So they're both saying, they're both, on the one hand, they're legitimating. On the other hand, they're differentiating. That's, that's my hunch about what's going on here. So it's not to say that this didn't really happen. It's not to say, um, but I do think, I do think, yeah, I don't think Abraham is sitting there going, oh, gee, is this really the same God? Is this really the da, 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 da? I, I don't, I don't think so. Was there really an intention on Abraham's part to go ahead with this? I think there was an intention to do what Abraham was told while all the while believing that this would never come about. So in your time at Libri, you're hoping to find some more resources around this topic? What, like, how, how will you take the next steps on this? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd want to see what people have written on this. I guess I'd want to see what have people done from a, from, a, from a cultural perspective. You know, when we, so I talked earlier about those, you know, the whole uh, discussion about s- slave versus servant in terms of how Christians are viewed. So I've got a couple books on slavery. Like how was slavery seen uh, in antiquity, in first century Palestine? What was the conception of slavery? And so I'd want to go back and say, how was 
what are some some stories about uh, the founding of, of of different faiths in the ancient Near East? What do they look like? How, who's done studies on this? Who's looked at this? Right? Because again, I think that's how we have to we have to have those sort of, if you like, the ancient Near Eastern competencies. We have to be able to see things as the recipients of this text at that time would have seen them, because they're going to get all the social cues and markers. Right? They're going to get this. We're not. We're going to see this from our culture. And of course, that's a huge risk. So, I mean, the question really isn't the, the first question that I should be asking myself when I'm reading Genesis, something like Genesis 22, uh, particularly because, um, not just because it's, um, it's shocking and appalling to me, but because from within the context of the biblical text itself, within the context of the Hebrew Bible, you can look in Ezekiel, you can look in Jeremiah, and you can find God making these statements being attributed to God by the prophets that God abhors the very thing God is commanding. So there's a huge contradiction within the text. So the first thing I need to be asking myself when I know, when I know that there's a big contradiction is not how do I read this now, but how would this have been seen then, particularly in light of that contradiction? So, you know, ask yourself, what's, what would have been jarring to them? What would have been jarring to them and what would have been normal to them? So I think the things are quite reversed. What would have been normal to them? Yeah, people sacrifice kids. That would have been normal, right? Because it, it's, it happens. God wouldn't have to, <laughs> there'd be no need for Ezekiel and Jeremiah to be, to be uh, you know, uh, decrying these things if they didn't happen, right? And, and of course, they're, he, they're decrying them to their fellow Israelites. They're saying, hey, you know, you people are behaving like your neighbors and you're doing these things and this is an abomination to God. This is, this is utterly horrific and appalling. And th- this, is, this has got to stop. So on the one hand, they would see this as fairly normal, that someone somewhere would be sacrificing a child is not a crazy thing. So what is crazy in this? What, what, how, how does this go together with the other injunctions in the Bible and the other situations that the prophets decry? And um, what might be happening here? What's the function? You know, Because when we see it as being about obedience, this is, this is the big, 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 big problem. And I know the text talks about the text on the one hand talks about Abraham um, not withholding his son and trusting God. But the problem is when we see this as a being about obedience, we are supposed to be obedient now. So is David. So is Moses. So is Jesus. So are the disciples. So is Paul. Obedience is a hallmark of being in relationship with God. But we need to see very clearly that in no other case does anything like this ever happen, nor is it even suggested. In fact, it's refuted and it's repudiated. That's such so, a different way to read the Bible. <laughs> well, but, how are we going to approach it? Because, and this is again the whole no, thing. No, you of, just read what's there. It's the Bible. It's magic. <laughs> it's magic. Yeah, but you can read one thing in one place. Like, I've got I've to be frank with you. If, if somebody can sit here and read Genesis 22 and say, oh yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be, and somebody can go to Ezekiel, here, I mean, where, where are these texts that I'm talking about specifically? Jeremiah 7, uh, Ezekiel 20. Um, gosh, for the people of, the, of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. I'm reading from Jeremiah 7, verse 30. Uh, I'm reading two verses. 
I don't want to read the whole story here because I just I, I don't normally like quoting a small bit of text, but for now, let's do it. But the people of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in in the house that is called by my name, defiling it. And they go on building the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnon, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. And, and we've got the same thing um, in, in Ezekiel. And, and so if you can read Jeremiah, uh, Genesis 22, and then you can flip over to Jeremiah 7, and you can say in both places, oh yeah, this is the way it's supposed to be. I mean, you've got a bald-faced contradiction. Either you're not paying attention or you've turned your brain off. Both of those two things, you know, pardon me, but to be frank, those are sins of the intellect. Some people, but some people, some people that don't hold to Christianity would also hold that out as an example as why the Bible couldn't be trusted, can't be trusted. Sure. And I would, I would agree with them. In other words, we have to find in every single example, every time you're dealing with God, you've got to find that in matters of truth and in matters of love, these things go together, not in a way that shows some ultimate harmony, but in a way that is not vastly contradictory. It doesn't mean you're explaining everything about God. It doesn't mean you've got God in your back pocket and you're smarter than God or some silly notion like this. But it doesn't mean that you can hold A and not A, that you can hold on to logical opposites at the same time and say, I've got no problem with this. That, I mean, that, that quite, quite literally, that's an intellectual sin. So what I hear you saying is there has to be some way to reconcile these opposing, these apparent, allegedly, apparently oppo- opposing points of view and get them close enough. And like most things in life, things rarely go together perfectly. Uh, yeah. And I would say it a little differently still. I would say it's not about there has to be a way of doing it in the sense that uh, here I go, I'm a Christian. And I've got these two things. I've got to make them work. No, I think the thing is, as a truth seeker, as a human being, as a parent who loves their child, I have a moral obligation and an intellectual obligation, both you know, ethically and intellectually moral, I suppose I could say, to embrace and continue to embrace Christianity. And this is, I know we're getting into, this is going to open a big can of worms that we could maybe talk about a little later. You know, I left Christianity for seven years. It wasn't just, you know, I didn't go to church. It was I was no longer a Christian. I'm, I'm repudiated. I'm done. Because this is a bunch of lies. And I think we must, for our own sanity, for our own integrity as human beings, we, when we come to be faced with things that seem to be so blatantly untrue or so blatantly contradictory, we must, for the sake of our own sanity and integrity, see that they reconcile. And I'm in a position now with God where it's not that I've got so much at stake. I've got much less at stake. I've left Christianity once. I could do it again. I know what's involved. It's a huge, scary, terrible thing for a Christian to leave their faith. But you know what? I've done it once. I could do it again. I don't want to. I don't want to. I've seen so much more. I've got, there's so much more going on. So it's not that I feel so desperately invested that my life is going to change and everything around me is going to be a lie and all my, you know, life's work for the past however many years in terms of belief is going to be falsified and I'm going to look like an idiot. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to for a lot of people about the idea of leaving their faith. That's not what's at stake here for me. What's at stake for me is that I am deeply invested in a relationship that I have seen to be 
deeply and profoundly true. And I've got good, good, good grounds. Every single time I've approached a situation like this and I've dug around and I've thought through it and I've researched and I've looked up, you know, what, what, you know, learned scholars have to say about some of these subjects. I think, oh, wow, look at this. These things. In- so I'm not for some way to make them go together, like building a house of cards that someone's going to blow on and up over. It's more to see these things are actually remarkably robust, remarkably interwoven, incredibly sturdy, terribly reliable. But we have not done the work because we have, in some senses, in this particular case, I think we've committed sins of the intellect. We've allowed contradictory notions to stand and say, as Christians, that don't bother me. Well, tell me, let me tell you, it should bother you. It should deeply, deeply trouble you. And when atheists come up and they say, look at this, look at the situation with, with, with Isaac, or someone who's, who's a, as a parent who, and not a Christian says, you know, think about this. Think about doing this. This should be deeply troubling to you. As a Christian, my first answer should be, yes, you're definitely right. My second answer, if I've done the work that I, I propose that people need to do is, and, you know, this was a long process for me to figure out how this actually works and how to actually understand this, this part about Isaac in light of these other parts. If you're interested, I'd like to talk to you about it. You've been listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on iTunes or over at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 43. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available at the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode. <laughs>